I don't want to be curmudgeonly, but I'm I'm not sure. I certainly don't think I have anything to offer other than basic principles, which don't change. I mean, in the end, it you are still doing the same job that I joined to do in 1968. You are still trying to get some boxes from a client's warehouse out around the nation by the end of the month. That's really your job, is to shift product or services or ideas from one corner to the other. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you're doing it on social media or on the on the on dentist's foreheads, which I think is a great undiscovered medium. Actually, dentist's foreheads. Um, it doesn't matter where you're doing. That's still what you're trying to do. And some people try and disguise the fact that they're in advertising and they're in selling by pretending. Well, no, we're not. We're in environmental media or some such bollocks. Hello, I'm Rashad Tabakawala author, business advisor, and supposed futurist. And welcome to the What Next podcast, smart conversations in a time of rapid change. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to another episode of What Next. Today should be a fun one. We happen to have Andrew Cracknell, who is a former executive creative director and the author of The Real Mad Men, the Renegades of Madison Avenue, and the Golden Age of Advertising. Andrew, welcome. Nice to be here. Thank you for asking me. Could you please share with the audience a little bit about your history, where you started, where you were, how you came to write the book, etc.? Okay. Um, I have uh, sort of fairly typical story of advertising people of my age. Um, as, a, as an original baby boomer, 1946, very few of us went to university because there weren't that many places. I left school at 15, did lots of different jobs and sort of fell into advertising as a copywriter. I'd always wanted to write and I'd really originally wanted to be a journalist. And uh, I worked in advertising for about 37, 38 years. I then left and went sailing. And then somebody contacted me at the height of the Mad Men uh, TV series fame and said, would you like to write a book about what was really happening? I wrote it in 2011. Well, I wrote it in 9 and 10, and it was published in 2011 in the UK, 2012 in the US. The point of the book really was uh, the the lessons outlive the fame of Mad Men, the TV series, because what was happening was a complete upheaval of the way that people within advertising thought about advertising at the time. And it was due to a variety of reasons that I hope we'll get on to. But I think the lessons that were learned at the time is it's when people stopped thinking about, when advertising people stopped, or some of them, stopped thinking about people as consumers and units and started to think about them as individual people with individual hopes, fears, aspirations, beliefs, etc., and stopped that really what was quite contemptuous and contemptible behaviour of just assuming that the market is just automatons. And that's what led to some of the better work. It, it, it made it much more humane. It made it much more interesting. It made it witty because people are more interesting than products. And I, as a creative director, I used to say to people, don't talk about products to people, talk to people about products. And that may sound like an irritating semantic difference, but it is just sort of galaxies of difference. But if you if you put, clients want you to put their product first. Of course they do, that's their job. You should put people first, that's your job. 
and, and work out how these products will fit into people's lives, not how you can get people to fit into these product lives. So it's that sort of sense of understanding about the humanity of who you were talking to and not treating them with contempt. Um, the second thing um, is really that the more diverse your creative department, the more interesting and mutually nourishing and effective and refreshing the people within it will be for each other. Starting, of course, with women, who are still horrendously underrepresented in advertising agencies and particularly in creative departments. But then, of course, you know, people of all sorts, all class, all ethnicities, everybody has a story to tell, everybody has a part to play, and everybody has a unique way of looking at things. And that's what we want from creative people. That's actually why you're there, is to have a unique way of looking at things. And then finally, um, I think, uh, this just may suit my personal characteristics, but levity and irreverence are really, really, really important. And I, and I, I say irreverence because I think it, for me, what the 60s was about, and I was there, was the growth of irreverence. It was when the hierarchies broke down, when we no longer naturally doffed our caps and dropped expressions like, old, like you know, our betters and things like that. And one of the reverences that, that went was the whole notion of the sort of arcana of selling and the importance of selling and the importance of products. And the key character in all this story, Bill Bernbach, I think what he understood was that the people knew that the agency was going to try and sell them something. The agency knew the people knew they were going to try and sell them something. So let's stop pratting around and have a bit of fun while we do it. And we will make selling and buying an enjoyable process for both sides, as opposed to being hit over the head with a hammer, which was how advertising was conducted up until then. So, and irreverence to me, it's not surprising it happened in that decade, is because, you, you know, with, with, with with the with the the people under twenty five becoming in the majority in the U.S. and the U.K., that entire youth wave uh, taking over, and young people having money in their pockets, and thus becoming important to marketers, you had a much more youthful attitude, and a youthful attitude is thankfully much more irreverent. The lessons of that age, in many ways, resonate even stronger today. And a book I recently wrote has a. You know, the title is uh, Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in an Age of Data. And A, it emphasizes people, which is your first point. The second is how critical diversity is to innovation, which is obviously a subset or part of creativity. And the third is I actually have an entire chapter called The Turd on the Table, which is when everybody gathers around and talks about the brown moist thing as a brownie, someone should call it out as a piece of shit. And uh, that is sort of the form of irreverence. So I believe your, you know, your key takeaways of people, uh, diversity, and irreverence and truth-telling is more important today than it ever has been. And uh, so your big point of the lessons outliving the people in time are absolutely critical. I think it's always worth reminding people about how it could have gone, it was going the other way and how it occasionally still does go the other way and reminding them why this sort of respect for what we blankly call the consumer. You know, the other day I was in a hospital and a consultancy referred to me as a customer. You know, I mean, 
I used to be a passenger when I got on buses, and now I'm a customer. I used to be a concert goer when I went to the festival hall, and now I'm a customer. I used to be um, a fan when I went to a cricket match, something like that. Now I'm just a customer. And I don't know why this irritates me quite so much, but it seems to be a reductive behaviour on the part of marketing people. It's just another way that it indicates they just look at us and I'm now not wearing an advertising hat, I'm wearing a normal person's hat. They just look at us as sort of cogs in a machine and we're all customers and it makes us all just objects of a transaction. And it's insulting, he said, ranting. It, it, it is insulting and the other problem really is they then want to have a relationship with us. And as I remind people, I don't want to have a relationship with Tylenol. I just want my headache to go away. Uh, and the only people really who want to have a relationship often with the brand is the brand manager. It's a very uh, odd thing. And looking at us as customers, consumers, you know, sometimes they try to call us members. Uh, and uh, it's uh, very, very strange. And I think words matter. And um, we need to keep that in mind. But uh, often now you would be dazed and amazed at how we look at people. We look at them as the net present value. We have terms like ARPU, which is average revenue per user. And a large part of the industry, especially technology and social media, believe we are drug addicts. They call us users and how they can basically, you know, send us messages that we can use and then they can milk us like cows. So I think, um, you know, we've, it's gone to a different extreme, though, of course, a group of people are waking up. Tell us a little bit about where you worked, because, uh, you know, in your 37, 38 years, you worked at a whole bunch of places with some amazing people. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I did. I, I worked at 14 different agencies um, 13 of them, uh, 12 of them in London and one of them in New York. And as I have said before, sometimes the, the only thing they all have in common now is that none of them exist. And the other thing they have in common is that I worked at all of them. Now, whether or not I was the factor, the link between those two, I don't know. But I started at CDP, which was then in 1968, which was then possibly the best agency in the world, including some of the New York, including the New York ones, because... That's why I have a peculiar interest in this era. It, it was CDP at that time knew what was going on in New York and we would regularly see the latest reels from Ali and Gargano and DDB and um, Amorati Purist, Amorati Purist, all the great agencies. And we'd see the work they were doing and CDP was imitating it and thinking in the same ways, um, but with a sort of British sensibility. I then went from there to a variety of different agencies. Pritchard Wood was one of them, which was an interpublic agency, which uh, interpublic folded it because they ran out of money and out of it came Bozeman, Simi, Pollitt, BMP. I went to a place called KMP, which was a wholly British agency for four years. I was at Kirkwood's and other British So many places you've never heard of. Um, I was at WCRS, which has only just ceased to exist. It's part of Engine. And then I had a long stint at Dorland, which became Bates. And that's when I went to New York and I worked at Bates, which was possibly the unhappiest job I've ever had. And then I sort of finished up at Amorati Puris Lintas as chairman in London and then at Bates. And God knows how I remember all that. Most of the time I was a writer or creative director. For a while I was a chairman. 
but I was only really a pretend chairman. Um, I've never played golf in my life. Um, and um, I enjoyed most of it. I, my, my stint in New York was horrible, but it wasn't because of New York. It was because of the agency and the state of the agency and its history as being one of the worst offenders of that sort of um, hit them over the head sort of advertising, the Rosser Reeves. In fact, Rosser Reeves worked at, at Bates. He invented the USP, which meant all you ever need to talk about is one fact about the product and say it over and over again, maybe up to 20 times in a 30 seconds. Um, and, and it was just a horrible atmosphere in which to work. And then I wrote the book because actually it was somebody else's idea and they said, why don't you do it? And they were a book packager. They put together an illustrator, a designer, an idea. They found a publisher. And um, I wrote it over a year and a half. I, um, I did a lot of the best bit was interviewing the people in New York. I interviewed about 50 veterans of the era who were uniformly wonderful, fantastic senses of humour, wonderful anecdotes, very generous with their time, partly because when you're that age, there's nothing you like better than somebody coming up and saying, tell us what happened in the 1960s. Um, and so informative and so bright. Um, and that was, I did about six weeks of interviewing. Um, and that was the best bit. It was lovely. What were some of the key learnings you had from, you know, the interview process, etc.? Well, it's the reasons behind what I gave you earlier as the key takes about, for example, diversity and about irreverence and about humanity. And they are all linked. And it's an extraordinary sort of coincidence. Well, it's it, sort of coincidence in, in, in the sense of chance, but just of timing, is that what had happened was that up until the mid-1950s, advertising in the US had been largely a wasp, well, you know, the province of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, and it was very quite snooty business. It was also a terribly cutthroat business. The average life expectancy of a Madison Avenue account executive was about 10 years shorter than most other American business people. And that's true. And that's because the pressure, you know, Madison Avenue is known as Ulcer Gulch. And that's, that, that is partly the three martini lunches, but it's also the pressure you're under. You lost your business, you're out that afternoon. There was no pity. It was intensely competitive and cutthroat. Ad Age did a survey in 1960, which said that only 8% of advertising executives trusted the people they worked with. And then what happened was, because of, because of the sort of, there's a similar story in the UK, really, because the, the Second World War, to some degree, evened out the class system. And because... Uh, U.S. first and second generation immigrants and the children of first and second generation immigrants had fought in the Second World War alongside the wasps. They came back from that war. They were educated. That any, any veteran who could qualify got free tertiary education under um, an act by President Truman called the GI Bill. So, and the, the, they did what their parents didn't dare do, which was stick their heads above the parapet because their parents were escaping the horrors of pogroms or poverty, starvation in Europe. They just wanted to get to America, hunker down, shut up, behave themselves and become US citizens. Their great-grandchildren had learned, they'd learned that lesson, but now they had some pride. Now they felt America belonged to them. And they started going for the jobs that other people, that their parents wouldn't have gone for, white-collar jobs. On top of this, there was this massive artistic boom in 
Manhattan in the 1950s and 1960s. It's extraordinary, the list of writers that, and painters and musicians that were living and working, still world famous, that were living and working in New York in the 1950s. My contention is there's never been a bigger crucible of creativity in, 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 in general art creativity uh, than New York in the 50s and 60s. And our people that flooded into the advertising agencies were largely Jewish copywriters and European art directors or second or third generation immigrant Jewish European. And they had a completely different sensibility. If you look at the television commercials of that era, you can hear the voice of Woody Allen, you can hear the voice of Mel Brooks in the writing, Phil Silvers. You can, you can, and the art direction was vivid and lively and funny and witty. And it, and it had none of the sort of stultifying, dreary, sell, sell, sell ethic of the stuff that had gone before. And they were younger. And they, and a few people opened their doors to these more exciting, different people. And because they were younger and because they'd been through a different track and because they were optimistic and because they were doing something new, they had this livelier, irreverent, they had incredible fun. I and mean, I remember one bloke describing the, the life at the agency um, of Jerry Della Femina's agency. Um, he said it was like Woodstock without the mud, which I thought was a wonderful quote. <laughs> and, um, and they had so much fun, which was reflected back in the work they did which was just witty and engaging and funny and original and startling and unusual um, and clever, but respectful. Up until then, there were really only two strategies in US advertising. There was the American dream and there was thrift. And so the best strategy you could have is you can live the American dream for less money. Do it now. Whereas what this lot did was they said, you're smarter if you do this, you're cleverer, you're wittier, you're funnier. If, you know, if you drink Chivas Regal, if you fly Lufthansa or El Al, if you drive a VW Beetle, if you eat at Horn and Hard Art, if you rent your car from Avis, it says that you're wittier and smarter. It doesn't say you're six foot taller. It doesn't say you'll get the girl. It doesn't say you can see round corners. It was a much more believable, credible, agreeable, uh, less ugly sort of pitch. And they're irreverent. So that's that's what I got from them. They're still like it. They're um, you know, in their eighties, they're still sort of really, really funny and aware. And you know, um, I wish I'd been interviewing them in the era of Trump. That would have been interesting. So, who in your mind were some of the giants of the creative revolution? Well, the obvious one is Bill Bernbach. He was Jewish. He was he'd been at Gray, and in 1947 he wrote a famous letter which every single creative person in anywhere in the world should read, and you can find it online, Bill Bernbach's resignation letter. He wrote a letter to the board of Gray saying that he was um, he was worried, he was frightened, and I, I, I in preparation for this, I picked out some par uh, some sentences. He said he said. I'm worried that we're going to worship te techniques instead of substance, that we're drowned by superficialities instead of buoyed up by fundamentals. Advertising is fundamental persuasion, and persuasion happens to be not a science but an art. He said, I don't want academicians, I don't want scientists, I don't want people who do the right things, I want people who do inspiring things. 
The danger lies in the natural tendency to go after tried and trusted talents that will not make us stand out in the competition, but rather make us look like all the others. Now, this is a plea to Gray, to the board of Gray, to change course in the sort of advertising they did. And they didn't. They ignored it. So two years later, he left and set up Dordain Bernbach. They came up with the famous um, Think Small campaign. And that really put DDB on the map. And lots of creative people, that was in 1959, 1960, lots of creative people around New York said, well, if they can do it, we can do it. And it didn't cost any money to set up an agency in those days. You just hired a couple of rooms in a hotel or did it in your apartment. It was mainly creative teams setting up on their own, trying to get a client and trying to do the sort of witty, engaging, irreverent work that um, Bill Bernbach had started. So he was a massive figure. He was the figure. A lot of people think David Ogilvy was part of this. He wasn't really. He was David Ogilvy did have some humane ideas, but he was actually very limited in his outlook. And the big difference between Ogilvy and Bill Bernbach is absolutely fundamental, is that Ogilvy would write textbooks of how to do advertising. And Bernbach thought that was just complete nonsense. You know, and I, in my book, actually, I have a page of four ads from Ogilvy and Mather, and they look like the same, they look like a campaign. They're actually ads for four completely different clients, but he just had this one way of doing ads. And whilst he, as I say, he did... He wrote himself with compassion. He was a very good copywriter and he did respect the consumer, but he had very limited ideas of actually how to execute ads. And importantly, huge difference between him and Bernbach is he had no respect for art directors. Um, other huge figures, Carl Ali, Turkish-American, who started, he was an account man, who's incredibly rumbustious figure. He was usually drunk, um, but he was very, very gutsy and he forced through some amazingly interesting work done by, like, his key art director, Ali Gargano, Emil Gargano. Um, Helmut Krohn, the leading art director, George Lois, uh, still around, still writing books. He's got a book out next month, actually, on how to collect art. The pugnacious Greek immigrant, George Lois, um, did, did some really sort of... He, 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 he and a, a, a copywriter called Ed McKay, Ed McCabe did the sort of work that socked you right between the eyes, you know, really provocative and challenging headlines. Not rude, but just really, really challenging, making you think again about things. Um, plenty of people. I mean, I could read off names, but unfortunately now, you know, 80 years later, 70 years later, no, 60 years later, they won't really mean anything. But, um, you know, I, listen, I don't get any royalties, but the book is still available on, uh, uh, as an e-book, so uh, you'll find the names in there. We've had the uh, pleasure of uh, listening to Andrew Cracknell, who has provided us with great perspectives of the importance of people, the importance of diversity, the importance of irreverence. He's reminded us also about how creativity at its core is the differentiating element and that we should always look at the people we sell to as people and bring our entire selves to work. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, thank you for having me. I enjoyed that, it made me think. What Next, a publicist group podcast produced by Prodigious UK.